The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would cause your Holy Spirit to be with us right now. We don't want to approach your word, to hear it taught, and then to leave this, this place the same way that we are right now. We want to be changed by your word. We want to be changed by the power of your spirit. And I pray that you would do that for each and every one of us today. Please, Father, cause us to have that expectation. Cause us each to listen attentively with the goal of being changed by your word, with being conformed to your word. And I pray, Father, that as a result of this message today, that you would cause each and every one of us to be the kind of neighbor that you call us to be, to have the kind of love that you call us to have, and to do this so that we too might have eternal life. Please, Father, I pray that you would show us why this matters so much. Cause us to feel the importance of this command. And I pray, Father, that you would cause us to do it. Cause us to do it. Please help me to preach this clearly. Help me to preach it well by your Spirit. Help us to listen well and to be truly transformed this morning. Cause us to behold you, Jesus, as the great teacher that you are, to sit at your feet, to experience what you had to say, and by your grace to listen to it and to live it. All of this we pray for your glory and also ask that you would do out of your love for us. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen. Good morning. Love your neighbor as yourself. How many times have you heard that? 50 times? 100 times? More than that? It's probably one of the most famous teachings of Jesus, perhaps along with the related command to do to others as you would have them do to you. That's Luke 6, 31. What if I told you that if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, that you're not saved? That would be a shocking thing to hear. What would you say to that? That if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, you're not saved. Sounds extreme. Sounds like legalism. And on my own, I'm not going to say that. I don't have the, the right to say that. But Jesus does. And that's exactly what he says in our passage today. Do I have your attention? Here's the point of the sermon. Only good neighbors inherit eternal life. Only good neighbors inherit eternal life. You want to listen closely to this. Loving your neighbor, why does it matter? And what does it mean? You got to know that, right? Love your neighbor. Two points today. Why it matters, what it means. You've probably heard this teaching many times. Maybe you even know the parable well. But I wonder if you've ever heard it as seriously as this. Point number one, why it matters. You know, we spent four weeks now looking at Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. This is a mini-series that we're doing. We're trying to behold Jesus in the Gospel. And we've seen him now as the Son of Man who has authority to forgive sins. We've seen him as the friend of sinners who came to seek and save lost, perishing sheep. We've seen him as the fisher of men who calls his disciples to catch with him. And last week, we saw him as the heir to David's throne, born on Christmas Day, the Savior, Messiah, and Lord. Today, we get to experience Jesus as teacher, as the great 
Jewish rabbi. Luke 10 is an excellent passage to experience him as teacher and to sit at his feet. Not only does it showcase Jesus' uncanny teaching ability, but it uncovers the ethical core of his teaching. And his answer in this passage is to one of the most important questions that anyone could ever ask. There's no doubt that Jesus was a masterful teacher, both in what he taught and how he taught it. He had the remarkable ability to transform dialogues with brilliant replies, even in the midst of testy situations like the one that we see today. Sometimes he couched his teachings in pithy, memorable sayings. Sometimes he creatively illustrated his lessons in metaphors and stories. He taught about many different things during his earthly ministry. He taught about the kingdom of God, God's restorative end-time reign, his reign in the age to come, which is broken into the present age with Jesus. He taught about the reversal of states in God's kingdom, blessing to the poor and suffering, but woe to the rich and happy, how the exalted would be humbled and the humble exalted. He taught about discipleship and the cost of following him. He taught about hell, the narrow door of salvation, and the need for repentance. He also taught about the future, the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the future persecution of his followers, and the need for perseverance. His return, judgment day, giving an account for our lives and being ready. He confronted and taught against the sins of the religious leaders of his day. He taught about prayer, faith, judging others, forgiving others, our words, anxiety, money, and love. But of all the things that you could hear Jesus teach about, if you could go back in time and hear him teach about one thing, this would probably be it right here. If there is one question that you could ask him, that you could ask the great teacher, I think it'd be this. This has to be one of the most important questions of them all. Verse 25, Luke 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Don't you want to know the answer to that? I want to know the answer to that question. This has to be one of the most important questions. I mean, what good does it do to know the answer to every other question in life, but not know the answer to this? In the end, what good does it do? Jesus is being asked this by an expert in the law. That's referring to the Old Testament law, the Torah, specifically the first five books of the Bible. This is probably a legal scholar and a teacher of the Jewish law. And most of these scribes may have also been Pharisees. It says he stood up to test Jesus. It's a test from one teacher to another teacher. Jesus doesn't have the educational credentials that this scholar may have had. He didn't have the same kind of formal training. And this teacher wants to see if Jesus, the popular and controversial rabbi from the no-name town of Nazareth, is really worth his salt. Can he give me a correct answer? He might even be hoping to embarrass Jesus, maybe to show him up or to trap him into saying something heretical. So he initially poses the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This was something that the prophet Daniel spoke about in Daniel chapter 12. He said, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, the Jewish view was that all people would be resurrected from the dead at the end of this age. 
when human history, as we know it, comes to a close and God judges the world, the wicked will be bodily raised to eternal judgment and the righteous will be bodily raised to everlasting life. This is really important. Eternal life is not heaven. It's not some kind of disembodied, ethereal existence. Many Christians are confused about this today. Eternal life also isn't just life without end. It's qualitatively different from life in this age. See, eternal life is the life of the age to come. It's physical, resurrected life in the restored creation. Life like it was always meant to be. Perfect harmony with God. Perfect harmony with others. No sin, no suffering, no sickness, no death in a world that's set right forever. That's eternal life. In Luke, eternal life is closely related to salvation and the kingdom of God. And so the expert asks, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You say, I already know the answer to that. It's faith or repentance or repentance and faith. What does Jesus say? Verse 26. What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? The great rabbi, he responds to the question with the question, and he goes back to the scriptures. That's where you should go. It's God's word. It's authoritative. It's decisive. And it can make you wise unto salvation. Jesus goes to the Torah. He goes to the Old Testament law, which was this Jewish scholar's area of expertise. And he asks, how do you recite it in the synagogue? Or what do the scriptures read? Verse 27, the expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. The expert, he stitches together two different quotes from the Torah. The first is from the very famous Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Shema was at the very heart of biblical Judaism. The word Shema comes from the first Hebrew word in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, which means here. The verse says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it's followed up by the verse that the expert quotes here, calling us to love Yahweh, to love the God of Israel with the totality of our being, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. You must love him with all of who you are. The picture here is one of undivided loyalty. And the expert synthesizes this command with another command from Leviticus 19, which is a section that deals largely with laws about interpersonal sins or sins against other people. Leviticus 19.18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, treat your neighbor the way you would want to be treated. Love your neighbor the way you would want to be loved. What do you think of the expert's answer? Legalistic, perhaps? Works-based? What does Jesus think? Verse 28, You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. What? <laughs> That's the right answer? This is what you must do to inherit eternal life? Love God with undivided loyalty? 
and love your neighbor as yourself? That doesn't sound very Christian, <laughs> but it is. You see, this, this strikes at the ethical heart of biblical Judaism. And this is also the ethical heart of the great rabbi's moral teaching, of Jesus' moral teaching. He stands in agreement with the Torah. And if you want to capture Jesus' ethic in one sentence of all the things he taught, if you want to capture his ethic in one sentence, you can find it right here in verse 27 on the lips of the lawyer. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus himself quotes these two commandments as the greatest commandments. And he says in verse 40 of Matthew 22, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's amazing. You want to sum up how you're supposed to live according to Jesus' teaching? Love God and love your neighbor. Love God and your neighbor. That's it. How beautiful is that? I know I need simple direction like that. One single ethical principle to guide my life, to guide my decisions, to guide my thoughts, to guide my words, to guide my actions. Love for God and my neighbor. That's profoundly helpful and workable. These two commands, they seem to have been combined before in Jewish literature, but Jesus may be the first to uphold this combination as the most essential principle. Not only does he affirm the ethic of Judaism, Jesus here, he also affirms a Jewish understanding of the blessings of obedience. Look at what he says in verse 28. Jesus not only tells him he's answered correctly, he says, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. There's a connection here between obedience and life. We see this connection throughout the scriptures. If you pick up this thread and you pull on it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to kick up a lot of dirt. It's going to kick up a lot of ground going all the way back through biblical history, all the way back to the very beginning. You can follow that thread all the way back to the garden. When God created the world good, there was perfect harmony between man and God and between man and man. The first human beings, Adam and Eve, they served God with undivided loyalty and they loved each other as themselves. And this blessed life was maintained by their obedience to God not eating from the tree that God commanded them not to eat from. But they did not obey God's law. They chose to disobey him instead. And as a result, they experienced the curse rather than the blessing. They experienced death rather than life. As you follow that thread along throughout redemptive history, you find God singling out a man named Abraham, singling out his descendants to be his people, the nation of Israel. And he promised Abraham that the land of Canaan would belong to his children. But you know the story. Eventually the Israelites wound up in Egypt where they were enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Until what? Until Yahweh dramatically intervened, rescuing his people from bondage by the power of his great might and bringing them into the promised land. But before they entered the land, after having experienced his great salvation, God entered into a covenant with his people through Moses. He entered into agreement with them. He promised them that if they lived as his people, worshiping him, honoring him, and obeying his laws, that he would bless them 
and prosper them. Their obedience would mean a blessed life in the promised land. Leviticus 18, verses 4 and 5. God said, you must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am Yahweh your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. And it's interesting, over time, many Jewish interpreters began to understand this blessing in a more transcendent way. Blessed life was the result of obedience not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Eternal life. And perhaps to our surprise, Jesus seems to agree. He affirms the answer of the Old Testament expert. Verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, obey this, and you will live. Now at points like this, we're very prone to misinterpret the Bible. Maybe this is what you're thinking right now. Yes, Jesus said that if we obey the law, if we love God and we love our neighbors, we'll inherit eternal life. But what he really means here is that you have to do this perfectly and you can't do this perfectly. And so you can't inherit eternal life. That's why you need me. That's why you need a savior. Because this is what you have to do and you actually can't do it. That's the point that Jesus is making. He's trying to show them how impossible it is for them to attain salvation and how much they need him. And that might sound like a perfectly reasonable explanation, especially within the context of our theology. But when you try and be honest with the text, you realize that that just doesn't seem to be what Jesus meant. It, and it's important that we don't try and, and, and lessen the force, lessen the strength of Jesus' words here because it might not fit with our preconceived understanding of how salvation works. You see Jesus answering the question from verse 25, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And his answer is verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's his answer to the question. Smacks of works righteousness to us. You know, in reform circles, we're so used to upholding sola fide. We're saved by faith alone. And that's true. But you have to understand what that means. You do need to love God and love your neighbor to inherit eternal life. That's what you need to do. Do this, Jesus says, and you will live. What? Doing? Doing works? Maybe that seems to contradict what Paul says in the verse we love so well, right? Ephesians 2, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. You're, not, you're saved by faith, not by works. So then how can Jesus say in verse 28, do this and you will live? The Bible does make it very clear that you are saved by faith alone. Faith that involves belief in the gospel and reliance on Jesus for salvation. That's how you're saved. But it's very important to understand this. Saving faith is not merely a said faith. It's a faith that has works. James chapter 2, reading from the ESV. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, 
is dead. It's useless. It cannot save you. It's dead. As my Greek professor in seminary put it, in contrast to dead faith, living faith, quote, contains works organically in itself and thus overflows with them in the visible world. Faith is like a seed. If a living seed is planted, it will produce a living plant. If a dead seed is planted, it will produce nothing. Saving faith is a faith that has works, a faith that has doing, a faith that has love for God and love for neighbor organically within itself and overflows with it in the visible world. Now, it's not like your love for God or your obedience to his law earns you salvation. You know, when you go to work and you do what your boss asks you to do for 40 hours a week and you do that for a couple weeks, at the end of your pay period, you're going to get a paycheck. You get paid for your work. You earned it. That's not what it's like with salvation. Your obedience to God doesn't earn you eternal life. You're not working for it. What did Paul say? He said you are saved by God's grace. That means salvation is offered to you freely, not because you deserved it. It's offered to you freely as a gift. It's like when your friend buys you a gift because they care about you and they want to show you how much they care about you. You didn't earn the gift. You didn't work for the gift. But as the common analogy goes, when they offer you the gift, you have to do what? You have to reach out and receive it. And sometimes people like to analogize faith to the hand that reaches out to take hold of the gift. Now, I know it's not a perfect analogy, but let's just use it as an example of how faith is a means of receiving something free. Faith is like the hand that reaches out to take hold of the gift and receive it. But if I could modify the analogy, I'd want to say that the hands are dirty. The hand of faith that reaches out to receive the gift is a sweaty hand. It's a calloused hand. It's a hand that has scars. It's a hand that's bleeding, perhaps. Why? Because they're hands that work. Eternal life is a free gift, and it's received by the hand of faith. But the hand of faith is a hand that's characterized by good works. In light of Luke 10, it's a hand that's sweaty from loving God and loving your neighbor. Eternal life isn't earned by keeping those commands. It's freely received by a faith that expresses itself through love. To steal Paul's language in Galatians chapter 5. Different passages in Luke and Acts highlight different aspects of receiving salvation. Some passages highlight repentance. Some passages highlight faith. And some, like this one, highlight the obedience that characterizes faith. Jesus said, do this and you will live. So why does loving your neighbor matter? Jesus talks about loving God here too, but the rest of the passage focuses on loving your neighbor, and that's the focus of this sermon. Why does loving your neighbor matter? One reason here, the great teacher said you need to love your neighbor to inherit eternal life. That hand of faith that receives the gift of life is a hand that is dirty from loving your neighbor as yourself. Is your hand dirty? Is it sweaty? Are you working hard? 
Do you have calluses on your hands from loving others the way you want to be loved? You know, it's really tough to say which error is more dangerous. To think that you can earn your salvation by good works or to think that you can have saving faith without good works. Both of those are potentially damning mistakes. Here's the application point for you. Do you feel how important this is? You know, if we go to the gym together, we notice somebody there who's squatting a thousand pounds. It's one thing to see how heavy the weight is, and it's another thing to feel how heavy the weight is. If you step under the barbell and you put it on your back, you'll feel the weight. You'll be crushed by the weight. How important is loving your neighbor to you? How important is it to you, really? What story does your calendar tell? You see, loving your neighbor, it involves doing. It's not just a, a well-wish or a feeling of affection for somebody. How much time do you spend practically caring for other people? You say, I don't have time for other people. You don't understand how busy I am. We make time for what's important to us. We make time for our shows, for TV, for social media, for hobbies, for reading, for sleep. Maybe those are more important to you than love. How important should loving your neighbor be? Well, in light of what Jesus says here, it should be as important to you as eternal life. Why? Because it is. You know, before the sermon, if the expert in the law had asked you, verse 25, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How would you have answered that? Would your answer be different from the master's? Most of us would probably say repentance and faith. But when you think of saving faith, when you think of it personally, do you think of a faith that has works? Do you think of a faith that's characterized by obedience to God's law, which can be summed up by undivided loyalty to him and loving your neighbor as yourself? If that's not how you think of faith, then you need to hear this today. You're wrong. The words of the great rabbi should be a, a bucket of ice water on your head. This is a wake-up call. If you're not loving your neighbor, you should feel like you won't have eternal life because you probably won't. Are you feeling the weightiness of it yet? Are you seeing how much this matters you feel something of the weight of what's at stake here. Well, what do you think it would look like for you to treat something as if it were as important as eternal life? Well, what's more important than eternal life? If loving your neighbor as yourself is as important to you as eternal life, it will be top priority for you. It'll be the determining force of your life. It's gonna be what you plan your life around what you plan your time around, what you plan your energy around, what you plan your effort around. Loving your neighbor should be as important to you as eternal life is. Is it? If not, that's the application point this morning. Just step under the barbell. Feel the gravity. Feel the importance of this command today. If you want to inherit eternal life, you must love your neighbor as yourself. 
your saving faith, your faith must be characterized by a love for your neighbor. Now, if you're feeling the weight of it already, it'd be wise at this point to ask for clarification. (laughs) Okay, well, what does this command mean exactly? What's involved in loving your neighbor as yourself? What does that look like? That brings us to point number two, what it means. Loving your neighbor, you've seen why it matters. Point number two, what it means. You know, the expert in the law, he had stood up to test Jesus. But after asking him one of the most important questions of all time, the great rabbi, he asked him a question in return and simply directed him back to the Torah that he already knew so well. And to which the expert quoted a simple answer and Jesus said to him, well, there you go, that's it. Now the expert, he's not looking so good in this situation. His initial question to Jesus seems like an easy question with an easy answer. And if he was hoping to embarrass Jesus or to trap Jesus, this certainly was not doing the trick. In fact, if anything, he might be the one who's embarrassed now for asking a question like that, asking a question that turned out to be so simple, so easy. And so he tries to justify his original question. Maybe he wants to show his original attention, or maybe he's trying to to recover from the bad look here by saying, hey, well, you know, Jesus' question, it's not as simple as it seems. There's more to it than this. He asks, Verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Ah, you're not not off the hook yet, Jesus. I know I must love my neighbor to inherit eternal life, but who is my neighbor exactly? How far does this duty extend? Who's included in that category? In light of the context of the command in Leviticus, to love your neighbor as yourself. Originally, this referred to fellow Jews, specifically. People of the same religious, ethnic, national community. And this is how many Jews in Jesus' day would have understood that command. Interestingly, though, back in Leviticus, later on that same chapter, the command is also extended to foreigners residing among them. Now, this is not the first time in Luke's gospel that the great teacher teaches on love. In Luke chapter 6, you heard part of it read, earlier in the service today, in Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, he taught on love in a way that was provocative to some of his listeners. He called for a love that surpassed and exceeded their understanding of love in the Old Testament. He taught in verse 31, do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be called children of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. For Jesus, there are no limits on who we are supposed to love. He taught that true love knows no bounds. So when the expert asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love as myself if I want to inherit eternal life? We already have a sense of Jesus' position. But Jesus takes up the expert's question, and in masterful fashion, he responds with a parable. He creatively conveys his lesson with a colorful, concrete story that speaks effectively to his listeners both then and now. We catch a glimpse here of Jesus' greatness as a teacher. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, 
a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. This row that Jesus was referring to, the man may have been familiar with, it was a winding Roman road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It ran through the desert about 17 miles. The descent from Jerusalem to Jericho would have been around 3,300 feet. And it was rocky terrain. It was a road that would make sense to encounter highway bandits on. There were nearby caves that could be convenient places for robbers to hide in. And the man in this parable, presumably a Jew, he falls into the hands of bandits. He's attacked by them. He's robbed. And he's stripped of his clothes. His clothes may have been valuable, but it also depicts their ruthlessness towards him. They beat him violently, and they leave him naked and in critical condition on the road. The poor victim of this heinous act will die soon if he doesn't receive help. The clock is ticking for him. The story may also suggest that the road was lonely, so the likelihood of someone arriving in time to help this man may not have been very high. But there's a fortunate turn of events. By chance, verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. Oh, good. Someone's coming. Our poor friend seems to have had a stroke of luck. And for a moment, we're filled with hope, not only because there's someone who can help, but because there's someone who probably will help. This man is a priest. He works in the temple. He plays a central role in the Jewish ritual system of worship. He's a religious figure in Jewish society. And after all, the ethical core of the Jewish religion, as the expert in the Torah had just said, is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. But you know the story. It's tragic. Verse 31, when the priest saw the man, he passed by on the other side. He sees him. He sees this poor man, a man just like himself, a man with hopes and dreams, a family and friends. He sees him naked. He sees him beaten half to death. He sees him perishing on the side of the road, and he passes him by. Why would he do that? Jesus doesn't say. Maybe he was afraid of the robbers himself. It would have been, a risk, it would have been risky to tarry on the road to try and help his fellow Jew. There was a risk that he could fall in the hands of the robbers as well and end up the same way. Whatever his motive, his action is heartless. The victim's situation was already desperate, but now it's, now it's beyond desperate. By chance, someone happened to come along who could help him. And not just somebody, but a priest, someone you would expect to help him. Somebody you would hope would love his neighbor as himself. But he just passes him by. He leaves him there, dying in the road. And time is running out for him. Just when our hope for this man seemed lost, it flickers back for a moment. There's another fortunate event. We look down the road, we see somebody else coming. It's not a priest this time, it's a Levite. Levites weren't descendants of Aaron, they weren't priests, but they were descendants of Levi and they assisted and supported the ceremonial system of worship. This man's religious role wasn't as significant as the priest, but it's still a religious role nonetheless. And while our expectation of him may not be as high, 
We still have an expectation that he will, or at least we hope he will, help this man on the road. He's a good candidate for being a loving neighbor, but he doesn't. Verse 32, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side, and our hearts sink. Why would he do this? How could he do this? Maybe he was afraid too. Maybe helping him would be too inconvenient, too costly. Ultimately, we know that he didn't love his neighbor enough. Whatever hope we had for this man, it shattered now. This poor man was fortunate enough to have two people pass him by on this lonely road. Both of them were religious people. None of them showed him mercy. None of them helped. Now, if you're listening to Jesus teach this parable for the first time, how might you assume this story would end? As one scholar noted at this point in the story, it could go a number of different directions here. Right? Would this end as a critique of the religious establishment with an ordinary Jew coming along and helping him when the religious ones, when the religious figures didn't? Or would it, would it end with God stepping in to save the day because they had failed to care for the man in need? Or maybe this poor man would die and it would bring shame on the community for failing to love their neighbor well. What happens next is shocking. The great rabbi takes his story in a direction that nobody expected. Verse 33, Jesus said, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. In Greek, the first word in the sentence is Samaritan. It's emphasized and it's shocking. We don't really get this today because the popularity of the story has given rise to this concept of a good Samaritan, which is a phrase that's made its way into our everyday language to refer to somebody who helps out others in need. You might think of the compassion ministry, Samaritan's Purse. You might think of the hospital right down the street called Good Samaritan. But what you have to understand is that when Jesus told this story, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan to Jews. And that was the point. Who were the Samaritans? The Samaritans were a people group that were hostile to the Jews. And the Jews were hostile to them. Maybe you remember in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was eventually divided into two kingdoms. You had the kingdom of Judah in the south with its capital Jerusalem and you had the kingdom of Israel in the north with its capital Samaria and when the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrian empire in 722 BC some of the people were exiled from the land and the Assyrians relocated other people from other nations into Samaria those people they intermarried with the Jews making the Samaritans half-breeds and the Samaritans, they also mixed the worship of Yahweh with idolatry, with the idolatrous practices of the nations that they came from. In Jesus' day, there was mutual hostility between Jews and Samaritans. And yet here in this parable, we encounter a Samaritan traveling on the road. And he comes up to this dying man, and he sees him there. Just like the priest saw him, just like the Levite saw him, the Samaritan sees him there. They all saw him. But of the three people in the story, he's the only one who actually does something. 
and he's the one that you would least expect to help. In fact, if anything, you might expect him not to help, but he does. Unlike the priest, unlike the Levite, the Samaritan takes pity on this poor man. He had compassion on this man. He was moved to help this man in need. Verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He provides him with, uh, with first aid, with medical care, with using the resource that he had on hand. The oil may have been used to soften his wounds. The wine, because of its alcohol or the acidity of it, may have been used as an antiseptic to prevent infection. And then he puts the man on his own animal. It says donkey. It wasn't necessarily a donkey, but it was an animal that could carry burdens or could carry people. And the fact that he was placed on the animal shows you just how dire this man's condition was. And then the Samaritan, he takes him back to civilization. He goes to an inn, and at the end he continues to care for the victim. He has saved his life. He rescued him. Now this Samaritan, he was in the same danger that the priest was in, that the Levite was in. He faced the same level of inconvenience that they did. He faced the same personal cost to himself that they did, but he helped him nonetheless. He was willing to step into harm's way to meet the needs of this Jew. Verse 35 says, The next day, Samaritan took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Wow. That was about, a denarii was about a day's wage. And back then, this may have been enough to provide for the man for a couple weeks or so. And the Samaritan has to go, but he pays for him to be cared for while he's gone. Pays for this out of his own pocket. And he also promises to pay the innkeeper when he's on his way back. He'll pay him back for any expenses that exceed the two denarii that he gave him. He meets this poor man's needs completely. He saw the need and he met the need. All three of the men saw the need. Only one of them actually met the need. And so then Jesus asked the expert in the law, verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? What do you think the answer is? It's obvious, right? Verse 30, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. You know, something that the expert might be painfully trying to avoid saying the word Samaritan. Maybe he was, maybe he's not. Still an apt description of what it means to be a good neighbor, the one who had mercy on him. Mercy here, as one dictionary put it, means kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. Kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. The neighbor was the one who practiced mercy. The Samaritan was the one who did this. And the great teacher tells him, verse 37, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. He calls the Jewish scholar to be a neighbor like the Samaritan. The Samaritan, the one they despised. To practice mercy. To meet the needs that you see. Do you notice something interesting about Jesus' reply? He doesn't directly answer the original question. 
The original question, verse 29, was who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? The parable answers it indirectly, but what Jesus does here is he masterfully transforms the dialogue by answering a different question, a better question. What does it mean to be a good neighbor to others? Which of these three was a neighbor to the man in need? The lawyer starts with the neighbor as the object. Who am I supposed to love? Jesus ends with the neighbor as the subject. Who am I supposed to be? Fascinating. Jesus says we're supposed to be loving neighbors. Loving neighbors are people who see needs and meet needs. They see needs and meet needs. Loving neighbors practice mercy. And true neighborly love, as the parable reveals, knows no bounds. It doesn't restrict itself to people like you. It's not confined to people that you have good relationships with or people that you like or people that like you. Neighborly love isn't limited just to people of the same ethnic, religious, or national community. And in teaching this, Jesus was challenging the popular Jewish understanding of neighbor in his day. In the story, it was the Samaritan who was a neighbor to the Jew. A loving neighbor is someone who shows mercy to anyone they come across in need. Anyone. Loving them as they themselves would want to be loved. That's the kind of people that God commands us to be. That's the kind of people he commands you to be. If you want to inherit eternal life, you must be a good neighbor. In a brilliant reply by the great teacher, Jesus goes from a question about who I have to love to what is a loving person. And the answer to the second question indirectly answers the first. A loving person is moved to meet the needs of anyone they see in need. And then Jesus calls him as he calls you this morning. Verse 27, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. That's it. You can't get any more of a clear application than that. Go and do likewise. Are you doing this? Do you have a faith that expresses itself through a love for your neighbor? In light of the parable, we see that loving your neighbor means meeting the needs of anyone you come across in need, regardless of how you might feel about them or what differences you might have with them. Think right now of people in your life that have needs. They can be Christians, they can be non-Christians, doesn't matter. They can be people that you like, people that you don't like. Maybe that's your annoying boss or family member who doesn't treat you well. What needs do the people that you've encountered on your travels have? Maybe it's something small. Maybe they need help with their yard. Maybe they need someone to babysit their kids. Maybe they need a ride to the airport. Or maybe they need someone to buy them groceries when they're sick. Maybe it's something more than that. Maybe they actually need money. Maybe they need a car. A resource would be costly for you to provide. And maybe it's not something physical. Maybe they're struggling and they need encouragement. Maybe they need a friend. Maybe they're lonely and they need someone to talk to. What practical needs do you see in the people around you? Now, if you don't see any needs, why do you think that is? 
Do you think it's really because all the people in your life don't have needs? It's probably because, unfortunately, you haven't looked very hard to see what they are. Maybe you haven't cared enough about them to even find out what they are. Do that first. Look for the needs, see the needs, and then meet the needs. All you have to do is ask yourself, what would I want them to do for me if I was in their shoes? How would I want them to love me? So simple. It's not a complicated teaching. Hard to do, yes, but not hard to understand. You don't want to be the priest. You don't want to be the Levite. You don't want to see the need and then pass them on by. You don't want to leave them there on the road suffering. You want to be willing to stop. You want to help them, even if it's risky for you, even if it's costly for you. You want to be the good Samaritan. I'll tell you one need that I know you can see. Each of us have many people in our lives that don't know Jesus. They're lost. They're perishing. They're like the man in the row, not just perishing physically, but perishing eternally. They are in critical condition. And you have the oil, you have the wine, you have the bandages, you can help them. You have the good news. You have the hope of forgiveness and salvation. You can offer that to them. You can show them mercy. You can meet their needs. Don't leave them there on the side of the road. Go to them. You see that need. I know you do. Everybody here, every member of this church I know sees that need. Meet that need. Are you meeting it? Or are you leaving them there to perish like the priest and the Levite? Too inconvenient for me. They might not like me. Might affect my relationship with them. Takes too much time. I don't have the energy for that right now. I'm not interested in that right now. If you're not meeting people's needs, whether small needs or big needs, you are not a good neighbor. You don't love them as yourself. You know, that might be hard to hear. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, though, how you feel about them. It doesn't matter what you think, whatever well wishes you might have towards them in your mind. You might even be a religious person, but the priest was religious, the Levite was religious. If you see the need but don't meet it, you're not a good neighbor. Why does that matter? Only good neighbors inherit eternal life. Saving faith is characterized by neighborly love. If this is convicting to you at all, I mean, Jesus' teaching is often convicting for us. If it's convicting for you, then ask yourself right now, what are you going to do about it? Don't be content remaining as you are. If you look at your life and you say, no, I don't meet people's needs when I see them, or I don't even know what people's needs are because I don't care enough to find out, and you realize I'm not a good neighbor, don't be content to stay that way. Today, decide to be a good neighbor. Today, think about a need that you can meet this week. That's the challenge for you. Make caring for other people a top priority as high of a priority to you as inheriting eternal life is say where can i get this love i can't manufacture this artificially in my heart i really want to love my neighbor as myself but it's hard i just don't really feel a whole lot of love for people 
It seems dry in my heart. It seems cold. It seems hard in my heart. I really don't want it to be like that. How can I love other people like this? Where is this love supposed to come from? It comes from Jesus' love for you. It comes from the love that he has for you, which you've received through faith. Let me ask you this. If you put yourself in the parable, let's say you're the victim. You're the one who was attacked by robbers. You were, you, everything that you had was, was taken. Your clothes were stripped from you. You're naked. You're dying there on the, on the road, badly beaten. And then this Samaritan, he comes to you and he bandages your wounds. He pours oil and wine on. He puts you on his donkey. He takes you to the end. He takes care of you. How would you feel about that man? What would your heart be like towards him? Wouldn't you be moved to him in love? Wouldn't you be filled with gratitude for him? Wouldn't you desire to pay him back in any way, in any way you can? To show him your care, to show him your appreciation? And wouldn't you desire to treat other people the same way? You've experienced this great neighborly love. Wouldn't you want to show that to others? This is not a hypothetical. You are the man in that parable. And Jesus is the good Samaritan to you. See, the great teacher, he practiced what he preached. He was the incarnation of neighborly love. He loved you as himself. And who were you? Who were you before God saved you? You were more hostile to God than a Jew was to a Samaritan. And yet what did he do for you? He saw you there perishing on the side of the road. He did not have to save you, but he showed you mercy. No one else could even help you, even if there were other people on the road who wanted to help you. No one else could. He's the only one that can. He sees you there dying on the road, not just perishing physically, but about to perish eternally under the judgment of God forever. And he steps in harm's way to help you at great cost to himself. Not just to the oil and wine that he had, not just for the cost and time, not just for the couple of denarii and paying back whatever the extra expenses would be. It came at the cost of his own life in order for him to help you in your place of need, in order to meet your greatest need, in order to rescue you, he had to give up his own life. He had to have his body broken and his blood spilled. The greatest cost that anyone could ever pay to help a neighbor in need, Jesus paid to help you because he loves you as himself. He loved you in the greatest way, in the most costly way that anyone ever could. He gave everything for you. And if you've experienced his love, if you've experienced his mercy, his kindness or concern expressed to you in need, then you will not only love him, but you will desire to show the same kind of love to others. If you've put your faith in Jesus, he's been a good neighbor to you you'll want to be a good neighbor to others. Your hand of faith that's received his love freely will be a hand that dirties itself to help others. We've had a chance to experience the great teacher this morning teach on one of the most important topics that he could ever teach on, that we could ever hear somebody teach on, how to inherit eternal life. He's told you how. 
Love God with undivided loyalty and love your neighbor as yourself. You must have a faith. Saving faith is a faith that's characterized by love for your neighbor. That's why it matters so much. And you've seen that this neighborly love involves seeing needs and actually meeting those needs. Caring for other people the way you would want to be cared for by them. We end with the same call of Jesus to the expert who was questioning him. He calls you to this this morning too. The great teacher calls you this morning too. That just as Samaritan did for the victim on the road and just as he has done for you, he now tells you, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. I pray, Father, that we would go and do likewise. Help us to obey this simple command to love others as ourself. You have loved us, Jesus, in the most radical and costly way possible. Through your death and through your, and through your resurrection, you have been a good neighbor to us, saving us from a need greater than the need of anybody else in our life. I pray, Father, that we would be faithful to meet the needs of those that you've put in our path, those that we come across on the side of the road suffering. I pray that we would meet those needs big and small, physical and spiritual. We would be faithful to bring people the balm of the good news and to meet their practical needs in any way we can. Please make loving our neighbor top priority for us. Make it as important to us as eternal life. We want to inherit eternal life, Lord. Please make us good neighbors, I pray. We can only do this by the power of your Holy Spirit and by having experienced your neighborly love for us. Please do that for your glory. It's in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.